You're listening to. Listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu, and I'm Rira Yu, and we are here to discuss our May 2020 book club pick, "The Woman Warrior" by Maxine Hong Kingston. Um, coming at you a little late this time, um, but to be fair, the world has not been um, very nice lately. That that is a severe understatement. <laughs> yeah, it's been. Um, I mean, just it's been good to see so many people like take a stand and be loud and be heard. Yes. Um. I don't know. Like as as stressful as it is for um everyone during this time, the black community has it. The worst, <laughs> yeah. And I feel I feel so bad because there's been a lot of like uh, like non-black folks who have been reaching out to uh, their black colleagues and friends, saying, "Hey, I want to educate myself. Like, can you like give me some <laughs> tips? Or like, I'm trying to like teach my ch- teach my kid about racism. Like, what are some resources? And it's like, like, dude, just Google it. I mean, like, as black people are exhausted. <laughs> I mean, it's as if they haven't been reading like the bajillion think pieces written by Black and Brown people over the last what, like at this point, six, seven years. I mean, it's been what? It's been almost, almost a decade, like maybe eight years since Trayvon Martin, um, six years since um, Michael Brown, almost twenty years, not even almost thirty years since the Rodney King riots. God. What is math? <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, so yeah, like it's not fair to put the onus on, you know, our black friends to teach us why it's important. A, these are things. Well, I mean, a these are things that we probably should have learned in school, but we we get taught like a sanitized version of history, right? Like, um, we all learn the same Martin Luther King speech. But we don't get taught the full story of him being like kind of someone that everyone hated, and he was also very like very radical in his rebellion. Even though he believed in peaceful protest, like he still protested, like he still went up against the authorities and was considered like a criminal, right, or like a agitator. So yeah, like it's. Like a lot of people um, who are misinformed, they've been saying like, "Oh, like this isn't the way to protest. Like you're not supposed to like destroy property and whatnot." And it's like there is no correct way to protest. That is what protesting is. <laughs> like you are going against the status quo. So there is really no rule for that. Um, it's been particularly hard for. Um, The older Asian American generation to uh, like get themselves educated to um, you know not believe everything that has been in the news. That's the struggle that I've had with my parents because 
you know, they're watching the news and they're like, oh man, like black people, they're like destroying all these properties and they're the ones who are like being criminals. And I'm like, do you not see all of the police brutality that is happening? Like even on the news, you see it. Like even if it is like somewhat edited, it's like you see that. How can you like, how can that not be the first thing you think about? Why are you thinking about the destruction of property and looting over black people being killed? like priorities right but um it's just been it's been a learning curve for for like asian americans and um yeah like yeah and i know there are a lot of there are a lot of resources too for like second generation asians to talk to their parents or give their parents about um about what's going on like because there is a language barrier for a lot of us and you know we've read this time and time again in like asian american literature where there is a cultural gap as well as a language gap um, and that's kind of been like if you the majority of stories written about Asian American families have been about this this language gap, right? So it's um it's a challenge that we all have to go through. But at the same time, like if you think about it, unless our parents come from like super privileged backgrounds, they were all alive at a time when their countries were like under some sort of martial law or police state, right? So it's not like it's not unfamiliar to most of them yeah and that's what drives me (laughs) up the wall you know like with with like the whole like trump trump administration and like all of the curfews that have been happening i'm like like mom dad do you not remember like when you were when you were a college student and you had to follow curfews like do you not remember the student protests that your classmates were a part of it's it's ridiculous um but uh, this is this is our burden as Asian Americans. Uh, it is not the responsibility of the Black community to yeah. do the work for us. Um, but speaking of language barriers and second generation Asian Americans, uh, those are very big themes of our May 2020 book club pick, uh, The Woman Warrior. Yeah. Um, what did you know about this book, Marvin? Um, so... I actually forgot that it's actually a nonfiction book. It, it seemed like I think the correct term is creative nonfiction. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't know much about it. I knew it had some connection to Mulan because the title is The Woman Warrior. And I think Hua Mulan, the, um, the character, is part of like the description of the book. But other than that, it was... Um, it was a book that was assigned to us or to me during my Asian American Lit class. Like for that class, we were assigned like five or six books and we only had to read three of them. So I didn't read this one. Uh, but it's always been on my to-read list because it is hailed as a classic. And I mean, it was published by Maxine Hawkinson in 1976. So I think chronologically, it's probably one of the first Asian American like texts out there. And I think that's why it's been both lauded and criticized over the years. And we'll get to some of the criticisms of the book later on. But I knew it was an important book that like you know there's certain books that like when you're talking to other well-read individuals that if you say you haven't read it, they look at you like, Why are you even here? 
And I feel like you know, this is like you, one of the You know, I, the I get that look quite a lot because we ho- <laughs> because we host an Asian American book club and and like they're like, oh man, like some some of my favorite Asian American books are The Joy Luck Club and <laughs> The Woman Warrior. And I'm like, oh, I didn't read either of those books. And they're like, and they give me the side eye. They're like, well, how like how are you hosting a podcast about Asian American literature if you don't have your basics covered and i'm like well did you read a contemporary novel by an asian american author in the last five yeah, years I mean, and then I, they shut up so i feel like that is part of that is the reason why we started books and boba to like expand the canon right to like share with people like there are there are other books like because we do get that a lot like even in our asian books challenge over the last month the jola club came up a lot from other people's lists and it's a book that everyone has read i've i read it in high school partly because of that it was like a rep sweats thing right where it's like oh here's an asian book i should read it um i remember i remember being glad i read it but not enjoying it um and not for the reasons that like people who are upset at the book have more that it was just like i don't know something about amy tan style just i can't get into it it um i was really um and, and I might get um, crap for saying this, but I was kind of bored. But at the same time, I read, it, I read it when I was in high school. So maybe I was, just wasn't smart enough to, like, you know, take in the pros, I guess. Um, but at the same time, like, as a Chinese-American guy, like, a lot of the stuff that she was saying about Chinese culture was stuff I already knew. So it wasn't necessarily like, shocking or interesting. It was just, like, this is somewhat representation but at the same time, I wasn't like clutching pearls about everything, you know? Yeah. Well, it could also be that because because the people who have really championed the Joy Luck Club have been, um, you know, Chinese-American women. And, you know, they say like, oh, this is representative of like my relationship with my mother and uh, the other female relatives in my family. And um, like I like... I'm not Chinese American, so like I, I'm sure there are probably going to be some things that I can relate to, but also there's like a generational gap. So I really do wonder like how uh, I could relate to it when when I possibly read it. I'm not sure when or if I will read <laughs> the Joy Luck Club. Um, I mean, it's your favorite that, style of book with multiple perspectives, so you know. Yeah, um, <laughs> but like. That's kind of how I felt about uh, the warrior woman. So I've never taken an Asian American literature class. I've I barely read books by Asian American authors in in high school and also in college, and I really didn't know what to expect. I, I just knew that it was a classic. It inspired a lot of Asian American writers, uh, especially today. Um, um, Maxine is a prof- is a writing professor at Berkeley, so she's taught a lot of Asian American writers. Um, but from what I had gleaned was, okay, this is a memoir. I'm expecting it to be about like generational gap and like culture gap. Um, this was written right after uh, Vietnam, and I wonder like if it's going to be about like pacifism. I don't know. And I start reading the book and I'm like, huh, this is not, <laughs> this is not a memoir. <laughs> this is not a memoir or a traditional uh, definition of memoir. 
Um, I know back then in the 70s, memoir was still a new genre. So there wasn't like the conventions of uh, of like a memoir like we have today, which right. is more it's not like a which is more linear. Thing, right? Yeah. 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 So I was really surprised by um, the structure and by how it blurred nonfiction with myth and folk tales and talk stories. Um, but yeah. I remember you telling me that this was like a typical thing in in like Chinese storytelling. Well, in terms of like, I think, and maybe this is something that um, I just resonated with because my grandfather was a storyteller. He liked to talk. He couldn't see or hear very well, so all he can do was talk. And so he would just sit and tell stories, and we would, you know, listen because we were, there's no, there was nothing else to do. Um, but I think in terms of like, like I feel like in especially in like I guess Chinese culture, history is told through story, right? A lot of the histories that we learn isn't really through text, or at least in my experience. And maybe it's because I didn't go to a Chinese school. Um, like I went to Chinese school to learn Chinese, but that was like, you know, in the States and I, I wasn't educated in like a Chinese or a Taiwanese system. Right. So I never had an, a academic, um, exposure to how they teach history. So a lot of my history came through story, right? Like the, the legends of, you know, um, Wu Zetian or, um, the three kingdoms or like, Stories from like the the Civil War, things like that. Like it's it's all through oral oral tradition, and so I thought that was that was something that I found was really interesting. Is a lot of this book is kind of that distilled onto the page, right? Like um, it opens with a secret, a family secret told through story, but never like written down until now, I guess, um, or until Maxine wrote it down in her in her book. Um, and I'm, I'd be interested. I don't know if there was like an interview of her, like talking about how, what her family thought about her, like airing her family's dirty laundry to like the mass audience. But like um, those stories of like hidden hidden family members who are like quote unquote shameful or like you know lose face um, is something that's really it is something that happens in Chinese families. Like um, there are relatives that like either we don't talk about or I don't talk to because of something that's happened in the past. Right. And like for my family specifically, like I know because of the civil war and because of our you know, re- relocation to Taiwan, um, there's a whole side of my family that I have no idea about. Like my, my family goes up to my grandfather and that's it. I don't know about his brothers. I don't know about his sisters. I don't know. I don't know about his parents. Um, we just kind of lost contact and they don't talk about it. And, you know, at this point, the only way I can learn about them is through my dad because my grandparents are gone. Right. So I don't know, just something about that got me thinking about my own family histories and like the stories that we don't talk about because either we're ashamed or they're ashamed or um, it's just not something like, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to dig up ghosts. Right. And that that's a big, um, a big theme in this story is like the concept of ghosts and being worried about what they're doing, what they do, what they hear, and like how ghosts can still cling to you even though they're gone and even though they're not corporeal. Immigrant parents love secrets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, um, so like with my family, I, I don't know much about them either. Um, actually, when I was 11 years old, um, my parents were like, hey, we're going, we're going to Paris tomorrow. And I was like, 
what? <laughs> like, why? I was like, why are we going to Paris? Um, I have, I have like an orchestra concert tomorrow. I have a solo, like, like I already like practiced for this, like what is happening? And they're like, oh, well, you can't perform at the concert because we're going to Paris. And I'm like, okay, well, is this just like a random vacation that you just like never like told me about that you like planned in advance? (laughs) Um, And it turned out it was, it was like a planned vacation in advance and they just forgot to tell me, but they also forgot to tell me that we were visiting my aunt and I was like, I have an aunt who lives in Paris and they're like, oh yeah, like she moved out there when she was like in college and she just hasn't left. So she's been there like for like two decades and I was like, I have an aunt who lives in Paris and who can speak French and you never told me about her. <laughs> and it's it's just like, I wonder how many, like, how many more secrets that my family has. Because they <laughs> kept that from me for a very long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of it comes down to, and we see this in the first, like, so this, the book is split up into five chapters, five parts. And each part is kind of its own, like, vignette about a specific story within, um from Maxine's life or her family's life, right? And the first one is the story of this aunt that was a secret, right? That was a family secret that she wasn't supposed to know about, but her mother told her, I guess, I can only assume to be like a cautionary tale, like don't, you know, don't get pregnant and bring shame to our family, but about an aunt who was um, unmarried, but became pregnant from like another man, right? And like the shame that it brought on the family and how like, I guess, trigger warning, um, like ended up killing herself and the baby the night it was born because the night that she gave birth, the villagers came in mask and like destroyed their farm. And it was all pretty fucked up. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the title of, uh, of that chapter is no name women. And we don't even learn the aunt's name, like at the end of, uh, end of the story. Yeah. And then, Throughout the book, you know, she juxtaposes these um, like talk stories with her own personal like life, like growing up. And geez, it's been like a week since I finished the book, so I don't remember what the contemporary part of the first chapter was about. Um, well, we talked about like uh, you briefly mentioned that the mother brought up the story uh, possibly as a cautionary tale, mm-hmm. and I think I think that definitely does play into her reason why she told it. But also, like, I personally think that she told it because it's a way to, uh, I don't know, make sure that aunt still exists, even though she doesn't have a name. Yeah, she does go into, like, the um, kind of wondering about where this aunt is, where the spirit is, and, like, the concept of, like, Chinese hungry ghosts, right? Like, we we, we, we learn about this um, when we read um, The Ghost Bride, right? Like, as long as you're part of the family, like whatever food the family puts out for their ancestors, um, you get a piece of it. But like because this aunt has no name and is not like officially registered as like a member of the family anymore, it's like she has no family and is doomed to become a hungry ghost. And kind of her thinking about how how just that is, right? And I think this is where um, so like to go into some of the criticisms of the woman warrior the biggest one that I, that I found from a lot of scholars of the time is the fact that like this book has a very like it doesn't paint chinese culture in the best light especially the misogyny of it and like how confucian values 
devalues women in society, right? This is something that is not like, it's not a secret. You know, it's like the dude wrote a lot about everyone's place in the world, especially women's. Um, Like before we started recording, we were talking about like the criticisms that uh, this book got. And a lot of the criticisms was that it, you know, it demeaned uh, Chinese men. It made them look bad. And uh, it distorted um, the view on Chinese culture by making it more oriental and more palatable to white audiences. And I don't believe in those claims at all. Um, With like the misogyny uh, present in the book, like that's real. (laughs) That's not a secret. Like we, we see it in our day to day lives and uh, it's not just in Chinese culture. It's also across Asian culture and even in, you know, um, American culture. And yeah, like it, reading this was kind like it was kind of appalling to me because like a lot of the like traditional phrases saying like oh it's easier or more beneficial to raise geese rather than daughters like these really terrible phrases that demean women like I was like oh man like this this is terrible and people still use these phrases but at the same time like like um like they're just Things that have um, persisted. I feel like a lot of this has to also do with rep sweats, right? Like, again, this book was published in 1976 at a time when I don't think a lot of Asian American narratives were out there, right? And this one happened to break through and was widely enjoyed, which is code for white people like to read it, right? And so... I can see people being upset that this was the only representation of Asian culture, Chinese culture specifically, that white people were reading. And I think it, like because she's kind of airing the dirty laundry, people are like, you shouldn't you should be writing positive things like you shouldn't be telling people how sucky we are. And so I can see why people were upset. But like in the grand scheme of things, because we have such more of a breadth of representation now, still not enough, but like still more than before, I think it fits more comfortably in the canon today than it did maybe when it first came out. I think it's a little bit ridiculous to say like, oh, this book represents all of Chinese culture (laughs) and all of Chinese Americans, because like one, it's a memoir. It's, you know, like part of it is nonfiction. It's told from Maxine's point of view. So why should she like, like, she's only representing herself. Like she like her purpose isn't to uh, promote Chinese American uh, uh, culture. Um, That's kind of the curse of being a pioneer. Like you set you set down the bare bones and you're just telling your own story, but uh, the majority takes it as, you know, as like the sole thing. Like there can only be one when there's other diverse stories within uh, within that culture. Yeah. And I feel like so the characters of the mother, the father and the aunt, like the Chineseness is kind of exaggerated. But but at the same time, I think there was a time when, like, all of us were kind of, especially us, like, second generation, like, American or, like, Western-born children of immigrants felt that way about our parents, right? Like, all of their, like, just as, like, all of our flaws are heightened for them, all of their flaws or their perceived flaws are heightened to us as, like, children who were, like, 
at some point like probably complained why is my mom so chinese why is my mom so korean right why why are they so like foreign why do they have all of these superstitions like why can't i like why why can't i wash my hair on new year's day why like why can't i eat this type of food on this day like i think that was um this wasn't said in the first story, uh, No Name Woman. I forgot which chapter it was, but Maxine talked about like holidays that would just like pass and they would not know that they were holidays because like her parents would never tell her and they would never tell her the importance of those holidays. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, so like the Mint Autumn Festival, right, which is like a big holiday in in um, in Asia. Um, I think um, Korea, it's called Chosuk. Um, yeah, Chuseok. Yeah, yeah. In um, like in Chinese, it's Zongchoudi. It's Mid Autumn Festival. It's like a harvest festival. It's what I guess you know Thanksgiving is without you know the um, genocide. But um, oh, we have plenty of genocides <laughs> on on different days. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's like growing up. Like the only reason I would know it was coming was my mom would buy mooncakes, and then would tell me, "Oh yeah, it's it's Mid Autumn Festival. Go pray to the moon." Right, go make a wish to the moon, and that's how I knew it was happening. There, there were a lot of like traditions that we had, but weren't explained. Right, we were just you know we just go through the motions. It's like going to the temple, as like a, a Chinese Buddhist. Like we go, but we don't understand what we're doing. We just bowing whenever our parents tell us to. Yeah, like I have the same experience with Korean holidays. Like uh, for me, like Chuseok wasn't really celebrated in America. And um, actually, the first time I like really celebrated it was when I went back to Korea like three or four years ago. And uh, I went during Chuseok. So everything was closed and uh, there were like fest- festivals like in Seoul. And I actually had like a family dinner with like my extended family for Chuseok. And I was like, Oh, this is what Chuseok is. I like, like I've only known it in the context of like a Korean textbook. Like we didn't do any of the cultural things that uh, that were like part of Chuseok. We didn't play the traditional games. We didn't have like the special food. Um, and there were like other Korean holidays where like my parents didn't really tell me about, and then they would get mad that I didn't know about them. So. <laughs> So, like, I feel like that's just, like, a really common thing where your immigrant parents are, you know, they try to retain culture, but they don't explain that culture to you fully because of, like, the language gap and the generation gap. Yeah. And, yeah, like, both sides become more foreign to each other. So, yeah, yeah, that was that was something that uh, I related to when I was reading um reading the book what did you think about the um i guess it's an adaptation of the hua mulan story of the mulan tale because it's like um so the second chapter white tigers is a retelling of a retelling right or like a dream version of a retelling of the mulan legend and like i want to say like this is where like whoever made whoever wrote the disney version got their inspiration from because there were a lot of like parallels to it um but what did you think about the mulan chapter okay so the thing is i don't really know anything about mulan <laughs> i've never like i've never read the ballad i my only context for it is maybe like a wiki page and the disney version of it 
Uh, so I was kind of, uh, I was kind of lost in the beginning with like, um, when it like shifted to the dream sequence and Maxine is training to be a warrior with these like two old people teaching her like how, like how to move silently, how to like do like how to learn from animals and then her trials in the mountains like i was like where where is this going i (laughs) i know that this is i know that this is a retelling of mulan when is it going to get to the part where she you know takes her father's place to go fight like when is that happening (laughs) (laughs) so i was really confused in the beginning but i just kind of um i just kind of like went with the flow and i really liked the um like the folklore part of it. I love that they made Mulan into a revolutionary in this story because like her parents like tattoo her village's grievances to her back. And then she like, you know, takes on the patriarchy and destroys the, like the like authoritarian government that's holding her village down. But then she comes back as a woman. Like she, (laughs) like she doesn't really expose, she doesn't go fight as a woman like her army doesn't know that she's a woman yeah i want to say the original ballad it doesn't end well for her a la joan of arc but i'm I'm not sure i don't remember like i don't know the specifics of the original source material um but i think i mean that's the thing right of this story it's kind of like the um it reminds me of the the struggle for like Asian American kids um, of like being told all your life, like, okay, you need to learn piano. You have to be the best at piano, but don't you dare do this for a living. You know, <laughs> like we teach our girls to be strong. And then when it becomes time for them to get married, like we treat them like property. Right. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, uh, like Maxine's mom tells her like, oh, you need to be more Chinese, you need to be more demure. But she tells her the story about this badass woman revolutionary (laughs) who, like, gets, like, revenge tattoos on her back and goes into battle with, with a baby and fights giants. And it's like, well, you're telling her two different things. Like, you have to... Like, you have to be demure, you have to be more feminine and, you know, take care of your husband. But at the same time, you're telling her a story about, like, being a strong woman and being just as good as a man. And those are contradictions that um, I think women face even today. Um, Like you said, it's like like you're teaching your girls um, how to be strong how to succeed, how to be independent, like how to get into a good college. And then once they're at an age where they should marry and have babies, it's like, okay, like... Your job is not to have babies. Your, right? your, yeah, your job is done. Your your duty is done. Now go make babies, which is kind of what happens in this retelling of Fa Mulan. <laughs> she comes back and it's like, hey, my public duties are finished. So I guess I'll... like i will be a wife a proper wife now and make more sons and it's like what (laughs) like like what (laughs) yeah and i mean she does talk about like her you know in this chapter i think is the one where she talks about going to school and like marching in like the um 
I, I'm assuming she's talking about the um the third the third world liberation front, like the the movement that got ethnic studies into schools, right? Because that was during this time. And then going to work for like a, a racist boss where she can't even like say anything to him. And kind of losing that strength that she thought she had, but like when it came time to to fight, she couldn't find it. Yeah, like finding your voice and being silenced at the same time. That is like a major theme in uh in this book. Cause there are like numerous times when like, you know, like women are told to, you know, keep secrets. Like in the first story, like no name women. It's like, oh, you can't tell anybody. And um, same thing with like later on, there's another chapter when um, Maxine's aunt comes to America. And that one was, it was fun until it wasn't, right? <laughs> it was, it was like, it was like a fresh off the boat episode. And then it just, <laughs> just went downhill. It went from sitcom to like, oh, this is, yeah, now we're in like now depressing we're, requiem for a dream. Like, requiem for a dream. <laughs> you know. Yeah, like um, we'll probably touch back on it later because I think one of the most um striking scenes was when Maxine uh bullies this girl from her school. Yo, yeah. That was so I also listened to this on audiobook, and that part was like I was like, I, I need a I need a pause and like skip this part because it goes on for a while. And uh, oh, and for those of you wanting to read it on audiobook or listen to an audiobook, it's narrated by Ming Na, which is pretty awesome because she is Mulan. So she did a really good job because I also listened yeah. to it on audiobook. <laughs> yeah, layers, layers, and layers. Um, I liked uh, going back to uh, White Tigers. Um, I liked how the dream sequence ended because it goes like I think the first line uh, after the dream sequence ends is my American life is a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's like Maxine being like, oh, I want to be like as cool as Mulan. I want to be brave. But, you know, when I face my racist bosses, like I can't even muster like a grown up voice. I I think I think what she what what the actual quote is small person voice that makes no impact yeah yeah we've all been there you know at a point like it seems so easy to like speak confidently especially when you know you're right but it's the hardest thing when you're not like if you're the type of person people just overlook because of how you look or who you are yeah yeah well like like the thing is um it, the Mulan in this retelling, uh, you know, she has a baby and she, you know, pretends like when she's pregnant, she pretends to be a fat man. And, uh, you know, she goes into battle with her baby and um, pretty much like which she seemed, which seemed pretty dangerous. Yeah, it yo. seemed like a real <laughs> bad idea. But uh, I guess, you know, you know, I mean, being she was a, Mulan. So, you know. yeah, Mulan. And also, I guess, like childcare is not an option. <laughs> um but but like you know she comes back to her village and she's and and you know like she comes back as a woman and it's if you compare it to the story of no-name woman like maxine's aunt also had a baby out of wedlock and she was shamed for it and she eventually um was driven to kill herself but 
you know, Mulan was able to avoid that fate because she, you know, disguised herself the entire time. So um, I thought that juxtaposition was uh, really clever. Um, but yeah, like as as like an Asian American girl, like I, for most of my life, I was very quiet. Um, and I still am pretty quiet. I, I am like a relatively really shy and reserved person. Uh, the fact that I... Like the fact that I am doing this podcast and also uh, for my job, I do public speaking. Um, I would never have imagined myself doing either of those things because talking terrifies me. Um, but like growing up, like I like I never spoke unless I was spoken to. And every time when like a teacher would call on me, I would just pretend I did not know the answer because saying the answer seemed really terrifying. Uh, (laughs) So I could like definitely relate to this fear of like, if I speak up, I have to say everything perfectly. Otherwise, you know, like otherwise I'm inflicted with shame and otherwise I'm not good enough. And that's um, also a theme in this book um, of you know, being able to speak up and not being afraid of sounding wrong and yeah. uh, kind of embracing your voice. Yeah, which I guess leads us to the third story or the third chapter, which is Shaman, which is the story of her mother as like a village doctor. And I think what's interesting is like throughout the story, her mother is portrayed or characterized as someone who is very headstrong and has no problem speaking her mind and speaking out loud, right? That's like the defining characteristic of um, of her mother is like someone who doesn't have that like little person voice like, ever. Yeah, she doesn't have the little person voice until she comes to America where she loses her voice because of the language and she yeah. loses her profession. She loses her power because um, like her degrees don't translate into America. So therefore she loses, you know, even her expertise um, along with her voice. And, you know, like I thought that was like really, really sad, you know, and it's a, it's a common story amongst uh, Asian American immigrants. You know, they are, they go to college in Asia. They're brilliant. They have like these high paying careers, uh, really satisfying careers. And then they come to America following like you know the quote-unquote american dream and it turns out to be broken turns out you know they have to work service jobs just to get by yeah um and i guess like we learn about her mother's story through her retelling her mother's own story right it's another place where like you know the folklore and the memoir kind of blend right because it's you're kind of getting a like a third degree retelling of these stories. Yeah. Um I thought I thought it was interesting because um in like the earlier chapters you are introduced to Maxine's mother who seems very superstitious but Right? She seems very like very traditional, like quote unquote traditional. But then you find um, out that she was a doctor yeah. <laughs> and you're like what? <laughs> like, <laughs> And it's it goes back to the whole thing, like you're you're teaching me one thing from like your experiences and your life, but you're telling me I need to be something completely different. I was totally like surprised at how 
her mother was someone who like for that time would have been a very modern woman. Yeah, she was definitely like a very modern woman. Like after she, you know, after she got her degrees and she came back to the village, she was greeted with fanfare. Like she was carried around and she had like, uh, and she always like dressed to impress and everybody respected her. Um, So it it was just, it was kind of, I I was blindsided. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like it was also like really interesting because uh, when she goes to school, when she goes to medical school, um, she enjoys this freedom of having her own room and you know not having to take care of her family. How like she how if she's going on errands, it's for herself, and it's such a small freedom, but it like like I don't know. It was it was just like. Wow, such a small thing, like, changed her life. Like, such a small thing, like, gave her so much confidence. And, but at the same time, I was, like, I know it's a different time period, but I was kind of shocked by, like, the whole um, girls being sold as slaves and how how she yeah. just casual <laughs> how she just casually bought a slave after she came back from school like i'm going to the market to pick up a slave like and like and that, Maxine's think, like how how much was your 16 year old slave and she's like like 50 dollars and when i had when when i gave birth to you it was 200 dollars at the hospital so <laughs> <laughs> and i wonder how much of that is like mistranslation like well, I mean, if you think about servants are kind of slaves, like they're people that you anyways, we don't have to get into that. We don't have to get into um, that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was um that was actually pretty wild too. That they were like, you know, that you can just literally go in and buy someone. And I get that like I'm sure it's like the um the maids and butlers of like Regency England where it's like this is how you provide a better life for your child because you can't provide something better. At the same time, you're selling human beings to like serve another person. I guess our uh, our American brains can't really wrap our head around that. But this is but this instills a fear in Maxine growing up because growing up she's like, oh, if I'm not good, like my parents will sell me once we get back to China. Like, (laughs) and that's like something that her parents like bring up jokingly, but it definitely played with her psyche. And uh, with like her mother buying a slave, she like mentions um, her slave like pretty often to her children. And Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like, oh, I had it good back then. And um, I think like it was Maxine's younger sister who, you know, who said like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a slave. Because it seems like my mom liked her slave more than me. So her sister grows up to be more demure and more, um, you know, lean more towards like traditional Chinese feminine values. I think this was this was the chapter where we first get like exposed to the concept of like all foreigners being ghosts, which I know is something that is more colloquial in like Cantonese speaking areas. I don't know. I don't hear it as much in like from my family or from, from people, from the people that I, I grew up with. Um, like 
saying that like white people are white ghosts and you know things like that but i know definitely from my friends who grew up like in hong kong and in southern china it's, it's a thing um but it's it was interesting to like for them whenever they talked about like a foreigner they were a ghost right someone who i guess as an immigrant you kind of disregarded how did you um how did you because i don't think it's a korean colloquialism so how did you um what ghost yeah how did you find like the the ghost like terminology it took me a while to like catch on <laughs> catch on to like the definition of like oh it means foreigners because mm. i know that like like i know from past readings that like uh there's a lot of ghosts in chinese folklore so i was like oh maybe it's like maybe it's attached to like spirits but as i was continuing to read i was like nope that's that's not it it's <laughs> not part like it's not part of the context um yeah like are they called ghosts because like white people are pale is that like the colloquial i think so it was like it was what it was like slang for like when like the british first came to china right it's how they refer to foreigners oh there's just they're just ghosts because they're 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 so white um, that's how I understand it. Um, I don't think I'm smart enough to um, dig into the literary like allegories or or significance of the term. Um, but I did notice like from this point on, it was used a lot, especially in the next chapter at the Western Palace. Um, because um, and I guess we can move on to that chapter, too, uh, which is told from the perspective of the immigrant generation. So. Uh, Maxine's mom and her sister. Yeah, and this is the chapter where we said, "Oh, it's a sitcom." Until it's not. <laughs> I yeah, like um, so in this chapter, um, Brave Orchid, Maxine's mom, um, had gotten the papers for her sister to finally immigrate to the states because um, her sis- her sister's husband had never sent for her. Uh, because what has happened uh, in the past is that men would marry um, women in their village, and then they would immediately go out um, to America to like earn their yeah to America to earn their fortune, and then they would save up money, save save up money, send it back to the family, and then send for their wives after they've they've set up everything. Yeah, and um, like first of all, I thought it was really interesting that like. This is when you learn Maxine Mom's Chinese name and her sister's Chinese name, so Moon Orchid, Brave Orchid, which is like it's a pretty Chinese thing to have like siblings share like one letter of their name. So we have that too. Yeah, right. So if people aren't familiar with this practice, Chinese names are typically two to three words, and each word is a pictograph, right? So, and each pictograph has a meaning. So if you think about like people's names like people's names are actually like a lot of times are things right brave orchid moon orchid moon orchid probably means um your land and it's interesting because orchid that word land is the same word from the lawn in mulan is that is orchid but yeah like it was really interesting to see maxine instead of like romanizing her mother's name to like spell it out as the meaning of the words in her name right her mom's name is probably like brave which is I guess it might be Yong in an orchid line, right? Um, as opposed to just saying Y-O-N-G-L-A-N. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. 
if we were to do the same for like my name, it would be like um, beautifully brave. I think that's the meaning of my name. Like, do you know what Rira means? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like what what I have been told, but I really don't believe it because I don't believe anything my parents say. <laughs> parents say I I take it with like a very good deal of skepticism. Um, they've told me that it means conqueror of the world. Um, yeah. And also like a fun fact, like my parents really did not want to name me Rira. Um, Mm -hmm. they wanted to name me like, um, I think it was like Rihe. And, but like, the thing is like in Korean culture, it's like the, uh, patriarch that, you know, names everybody. So like my grandfather was the one who picked my name and, Uh um, and like, they told me that they told me that they picked, uh, that he picked this very obscure name. Um, <laughs> I've never seen the Chinese uh, characters of my name, but from what mm. I have been told, they're very, very old characters. And there's a lot of brushstrokes involved. So neither <laughs> of my parents know how to spell it. So I've never seen really? it. <laughs> so I've never seen it. Um, oh. Yeah, but like we also have like the, the like family names have like this, the same syllable or like the same character in their name. And uh, actually you can trace family trees just by names alone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my family too. So um, each generation of my family has like a, a generation name. So I have my, I have my family name, my generation name, and then my name name. Right. So mine's is um, Yue, which is my family name, Mei, which is my um, generation name and Hong, which is my, a given name, I guess, and it's some um, interesting because the May in um in my name means beautiful, and it's traditionally used only in girls' names. So all the guys in my generation, and there's like three of us, have like on paper what looks like girls' names, right? So <laughs> I think my parents went extra masculine on my like given name to like kind of counteract that. Um, although it's it's a homonym for like the color red. So if I just say my name out loud, it might it sounds like red. my name is beautiful <laughs> red, right? Um, names are names are interesting, and names are like a prayer, you know. Like they like they give you specific names, hoping that you grow up to to live up to your name, quite literally. <laughs> yeah, and Maxine could have easily written her mother's like Romanized name, and the readers would read it as Yonglan, as something as just a name that like. Sounds weird, right? It's like a Chinese name. But the fact that she used Brave Orchid, which is the meaning of the name, like it changes it, right? It, it changes how you perceive this woman. I yeah. thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really interesting as well. Um, also, like like Brave Orchid, her mom, you know, when she immigrated to America, she kept it. Like she didn't she didn't uh, change it to like an American name. She didn't Romanize it in, in like a <laughs> way that like immigrants uh, usually do. And uh, she kept her surname, like she didn't. She didn't take her uh, husband's surname. Um. So yeah, like her mom definitely had an independent streak, and yeah. uh, you know she kind of lived up to her name as Brave Orchid. She is very brave. Um, yeah. But compared her to her also. sister, <laughs> her sister though. Oh man, there are definitely. Um, like i think it's i think it's like common knowledge that um immig- asian american immigrants here like they're very very strong 
Like only the strong survive <laughs> in a country where they don't speak the language. Uh, everything's unfamiliar. And yeah. uh, you're not surrounded by people who the majority doesn't look like you. Like you have to have a strong mindset to survive that. And Moon Orchid, the sister, it's it's a culture shock and it it ends up being her uh, downfall. Yeah. I did not expect it to go the um the way of like total mental breakdown. Um and I mean I think you can infer that she's always had some sort of um maybe mental illness of some sort. Um and that the new environment kind of either accelerated or triggered it somehow. Like I couldn't tell if it was like just anxiety or something deeper. It it definitely evolved into something that seemed like schizophrenia. Like, um, I mean, stress can do that. Environmental change can do that to someone's mental illness. It can be dormant and then just all of a sudden happen. Yeah. There was a line saying that the the moment that she kind of repeated the same thing over and over again was when her mother kind of like accepted that it, something was something was up. Yeah. Like the the quote was like, oh, like not like normal people they tell variants of the same story like none of it is none of the details are always consistent but when the story is exactly the same down to the details that means that that person is uh, mentally ill and uh probably needs help <laughs> yeah um, but the reason why why moon orchid is brought to america is because um like we said, like her husband didn't send for her. Um, but in addition to that fact, uh, Brave Orchid finds out that Moon Orchid's husband has married. His own family. Yeah, has like a second wife and a second family. And this seems like this seems to be like a common trait among men in this book. Cause they talk about it like, oh yeah, this uncle, he's living in Singapore and he's on his he's on his third wife. And I'm like, are you okay with that? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. So I don't know enough about Confucian like philosophy, but it seems like it's allowed under that. And it's like a part of the culture, right? Which again, to our like Western sensibilities seems fucked up. Um, but that's another example of like the kind of cultural divide of how, how we see things and how they see things. But it was really interesting that Brave Orchid was so, like, adamant about Moon Orchid claiming what's hers, which seems like a very American way of Yeah, thinking. it was totally, like, really <laughs> American. Um, I don't know, like, I don't know at the time if um, you were allowed to have multiple wives in China, like, during that time I mean, at this point, period. it would have been, like, the 50s or 60s i want to say like it was probably and i mean they do bring up the cultural revolution and how like and it's really sad this detail of like after the civil war a lot of their family back in china were writing all the time asking for money but then the people asking for money started like not writing anymore because they were probably getting killed in like you know the struggle sessions that we read about in the three body problem right the whole like cultural revolution and and that whole era like kind of it made it so that like they ended up having to send less money back home which to the kids to the family there was kind of like a relief but to like 
like existentially, it was like, oh, that's pretty depressing. You know, that's kind of sad. It was also interesting how like, um, you know, like terrible things are happening to their family. But in the book, Maxine mentions at some point that, oh, like no one mentions that uh, the Cultural Revolution brought an end to selling girls in the slave market. Um, it pro- it brought an end to like killing girls as like infants because a family couldn't like birth a son or whatever. Um, yeah. So I thought that part was like pretty interesting. Um I mean, it did that, but it also brought the one-child policy, which brought it back. Yeah, which brought it back. <laughs> Life is a circle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I found this chapter to be, like, so funny because Brave Orchid's plans for for Moon Orchid to, like, you know, claim what's hers was just so ridiculous. Like, her being like, oh, you should wear a wig and look young and then knock on the door. And if it's the, (laughs) (laughs) and if, and if little wife is there, uh, you like, you dramatically take off your wig and say, I'm, I'm the big wife and this is my house. Get out. (laughs) Yeah. And she even goes and spies on the little wife and like, you're right. It is a sitcom. It's like, if this was like, it's a Korean drama at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And um, uh, what I most um, resonated with in this chapter was the poor son, right, who has to drive her mom and her aunt to this um, to this clinic of his like uncle in law, and and like execute like lure his uncle out and like by telling a lie, which like I have been in in this position. Oh, I think all of us have been in this situation. Like I think all of us have. Yeah, like. Just something like something super embarrassing that you don't want to do because you know it's not going to work. But they're so like, don't worry about it. This will work. Just go do it. Do what we say. <laughs> I think like what what did he do? Like he had to like go up and say, oh, like an old lady like got run over got- by a car. <laughs> and <then laughs> yeah. It's just like, and it's and it was just like so funny to me because it was like it was like an office building, right? So. Yeah. It's just like, oh, out of all the places you can ask for help, you like ended up going to this very specific office building, knowing this specific <laughs> office was a doctor's office. So like, yeah, like I've definitely had my parents make me do things like that. Um, not so dramatic as uh, as lying about a car accident, but definitely in like, and like going up to authorities and be like, demand this. It's like, yeah, like, no, <laughs> ask for their, ask for this. It's like things that like we've all thought in, in our heads, like, this is not the way things work here. <laughs> this isn't China. This isn't Korea. We can't do this. The thing that like um, one of the most embarrassing things that they made me do is um, actually they've, they've done this multiple times where I'm in the same room and they want me to translate and they're they're yelling in Korean, like yelling at the top of their lungs, and and I'm just like, and they're like translated word for word, and I'm like, <sighs> like there were a lot of curse words that came out of your mouth, and and like I'm I'm like translating it in like the most polite way that I can, in like the most measured, calm voice as I can, and my parents are like, no, translate the tone translate my anger (laughs) it's like it's like oh please let me die like i can't so i definitely felt 
the son's yeah. plight in, in this chapter. But it was, it was very relatable. But it was just like so, like it was so sad when um, her husband did show up and he was just like, oh, like I, like I don't have time for you. I made like a new life here and uh, like you just don't fit. So here's some money, I guess. And um, and it was just like really sad because like there was also like this notion of like women in China, like when they got married, they were married to younger men, like younger boys, so that they can take care of the the young husband for the rest of their lives. They're pretty much being a babysitter. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is <laughs> this is very sad. And um and it was yeah. just like it was particularly sad because Moon Orchid is unable to say anything. Like she doesn't have a voice in this conversation. And we've mentioned the theme of voice earlier. And uh, by not being able to speak the language, by not being able to stand up for herself, um, her mind deteriorates. Yeah. And we end on a super... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Super down there. Wait, I want to when I want to mention like Moon Orchid's uh, <laughs> habits of like following her nieces and nephews around and just like kind of like narrating over them. Boom. Oh, <laughs> I just thought that was like, yeah, it was. Um, if I was if I were them, I would have lost my mind. <laughs> oh, I think they did. They did. I mean, they really did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we all have those. um not only embarrassing relatives, but like annoying, I guess. Super nosy relatives. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was her way of showing she cares. You yeah. Know? Well, it, it was like, it was just like really funny where uh, there was just one line where she's like, oh, I compliment the children and they don't deny the compliment like you should <laughs> in like traditional Chinese culture. Like always, always deny at least three times before taking the compliment. And, yeah. and she's just like, oh, you're so pretty. Thanks. Thanks, Aunt. And it's like, <laughs> what? Like, oh, they didn't grow up with manners. They're barbarians. And I just thought that was, like, hilarious. <laughs> I just wanted to mention it. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how all of our parents think we are. Like, we're so we're so American, you know, so, so, um, so, so rude, so uncultured. Right. Which is, like, exactly what we think of them sometimes, which is, you know, I guess... It's our plight as children of immigrants. It's okay. They make us uncomfortable and we make them uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like a back and forth trade. Um, yeah. Which yeah, which brings us to the final like vignette of this story, which is a song for a barbarian reed pipe, which um yeah, this 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 chapter got me a little uncomfortable too. Especially the the bullying scene. The bullying scene was um was a lot. Yeah. Um, but but in this story, we finally get to a point where the folklore part of it is actually like the smallest part of the chapter. This chapter read more like a like a straight up memoir, right? Of like, I guess her not even adolescent years, like preteen years, right? This was like her in middle school. Yeah, it was it was before she went off to college. Um, right. I, I'm not sure how old she was, but this is the chapter where she has like that showdown with her mom, like yeah. telling her like I can't tell what's like what's myth or you just making up stories or what's real like 
Like she, like this is this is like the moment where she's like yelling at her mom, saying like I feel like yeah. I'm not enough, and I'm like so tired of it. It's like the climactic scene in like every single immigrant child narrative, like child parent narrative, um, like Joy Luck Club, right? It's like I'm leaving you once I go to college. Like I'm gonna, like I'm gonna be able to think for myself. I'm gonna be independent, and all of the things that you've taught me, all of the superstitions, are just gonna go out the window because they're useless. Yeah, and it's you know, it's triggered by her assuming her parents are trying to like set her up, right? Trying to like because, and and I guess this is something that is has been kind of um, building throughout the book throughout the narrative is like. This idea that, like, to her parents, she is just something to be planned and given away because she's a girl. Her life isn't her own because of everything that she's been taught growing up and all the stories that her mom tells her um, about her aunt, about uh, about Mulan and the things that she can and can't be. And I'm sure that, like, growing up with those expectations, whether they're real or just implied, um, is tough and stressful, right? Yeah, and like there's also this fear of um of going quote unquote crazy. Like we've seen women with, you know, uh mental illnesses throughout this book. Like you have um you have Moon Orchid and you also have um that one woman, I forgot which chapter it was. I think it was in Shaman. Um Yeah. The, the villager the, who has like the, the mirror yeah, the- headdress to like to like see the Japanese planes to see if they're going to bomb the village and the villagers, instead of just taking off the headdress, they stone her to death because they're like, Oh, you're crazy. Um, So you're a spy. They think she's a spy spy or, or something. Um, But there's always this fear of being sold and, you know, being considered like a threat and uh, in a, uh, and like, kind of a kind of a burden as well and even if they're told as jokes or a means to teach her daughter um to be strong to not be like this that there are alternative ways to live as a woman like it still gets to you it still got to her um yeah and i think that is pretty common in in like growing up as a second generation asian american like your parents, your parents yeah. mean well, they, you know, they, some of them have may exert tough love, but in the end, that tough love kind of traumatizes you. <laughs> yeah. Right. But also like, like understanding that this type of love, this type of like upbringing, this, these types of like expectations or um, methods come from your parents being foreign, like from another country that's different than yours because you grew up here in the States. And I can see how that can lead to someone trying to disassociate, right? And I think that's what leads to her bullying this other Chinese girl in her class who's like very quiet, right? And like doesn't say anything, doesn't... Like she's someone who like represents everything that she hates about either herself or her culture, right? Like the person that everyone thinks that she also is. Um, and it leads to, at least so like that bullying scene was very, it was very long and very, um, 
was sort of like raw, right? It was very. It was it was very intense. Yeah. Yeah. It was a scene where, like, you know that Maxine is bullying that girl because she sees herself in that girl. Like, she sees herself uh, being this being this quote unquote weak girl who can't speak up can't think for herself, um, is not independent and just has to like stay quiet, stay as like a good girl. Like all of that pressure and insecurity is manifested in this girl. And she's just, uh, letting out all of her frustrations on her. And, um, it just goes to show that like, you know, even like like other people want to use your voice for their own purposes. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that bullying scene was like really intense. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. I had to like, I had to take a break from it because I was, <laughs> I was severely <laughs> bullied growing up and uh, that scene kind of triggered a lot of bad yeah. memories. Especially listening to it. I don't know how, like I don't, I listened to this part on audiobook and it was very like, I was surprised on how long it went for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there was, um, it was followed by her being sick for a year. So I guess she also acknowledges that that's also like karmic revenge for what she did. Also, she says that it was the best 18 months. I think it was like 18 months. I don't remember, but like, <laughs> like she was like, Oh, like it was like the best time ever just being sick. Yeah. Um, and then this leads to her, like, you know, her, her paranoia about her parents, um, wanting to set her up with, um, a, uh, another disabled boy. And I guess it's part misunderstanding, but also part, like her parents were talking, her mom was talking to a matchmaker, right? That was what triggered like the whole thing. It wasn't a matchmaker. It was like an actual suitor. And they were looking at like the photos of the children. And he was like, I want that one. And she says, oh, no, the eldest first. And that's when, like, Maxine, like, was just, like... But that was when Maxine was, like, purposely dropping dishes and, like, pretending that she couldn't walk properly and just, like, doing all the things that uh, good Chinese girls aren't supposed to do. Yeah. And, I mean, I think practically I get your parents wanting to... You know, it's the whole thing where, like, they just want stability for you, which is, like, what we hear all the time from, like, other people about their analysis of, like, how white Asian parents are the way they are. Um, I get that. And I get why, like, I would be upset, too, if my my parents were trying to, like, set me up with, like, an arranged marriage, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, like, that's also a cultural thing. Like, I'm sure if they were in China, this would just be normal. I mean, there are, have you heard of like these marriage gardens in China? Oh yeah, I've heard about them. <laughs> yeah, like there, there's, there are parks where parents meet to exchange information on their kids. It's like they meet with other parents, exchange like resumes of their children, try to set them up with like blind dates. And it sounds terrible. And I'm sure the kids there these days aren't down with that neither, but it's a thing that happens. 
your parents worry about you and for some reason they think marriage is the only way you will survive in this world um or maybe they're just worried about grandchildren i don't know there's a lot of different reasons i think it's i think it's both you know it's like oh you must continue the line and also also (laughs) like who's gonna who's gonna take care of you when you're when you're old and all that all that stuff yeah (laughs) um but this chapter wraps up with the folklore part of this the story which is a a story about a woman poet in i guess um i guess you call it ancient china right uh, who gets kidnapped by a barbarian like lives amongst them for like 18 years and then comes home and then composes a song that kind of mixes those two um those two cultures her chinese heritage and this banded culture that she was a part of and it ends with the line it translated well which I mean, to me, I interpret that as like her reconciling these two parts of her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, which I think this whole book is kind of, it's that, right? It's her working through, like combining her like autobiographical memoir parts with like this folklore and heritage and stories that were, that are from like her mother and from, you know, Chinese culture. And even though it was um, non-traditional in the way that it was written, it all meshed together like at least to me, it all meshed together really well. Yeah, I think I, I think it definitely had like a nice flow to it. I definitely like the fact that the very last chapter was more nonfiction, and um, there was that climax scene with Maxine, you know, yelling at her mother, saying like, "I don't know what's real. I don't know what's fake." Um, I'm tired of your talk stories and it's just like, I'm so tired of you telling me that I'm like a worthless girl and also telling me to be independent. Like everything is confusing. And then you end on like this folklore, um, about someone who, you know, goes to live with barbarians for years and has to like reconcile her Chinese identity with, uh, the barbarians culture. So I think it does really tie it up pretty nicely yeah um so any final thoughts about this book are you glad you read it um i don't know (laughs) (laughs) here's the thing this book was a pioneering book and it was definitely like the skeleton of a lot of um future asian american books especially books about like uh asian american daughters and mothers Um, and about like overcoming misogyny and bridging cultures. Like it has like all of the bones, Yeah, but because I've seen it, but I've seen it so many times in other books (laughs) in, in contemporary ways where, you know, I can relate more because it's more recent. Um, so I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm, like, super glad that I read it, but I can say that I've read it to all of the, <laughs> to all of the literature snobs out there. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. I, I'm glad I read it. And I think as someone of Chinese descent, a lot of it did um, resonate stronger with me. Um, and, like, likewise, I think the biggest the biggest thing I'm getting from this is the, to, like, be able to say I've read The Woman Warrior. The, right? the flex. <laughs> As a defense mechanism. It's right? all about the flex. I'm, I don't flex with people. I, I don't do that anymore. I'm too old for that. Um, <laughs> I'm too mature <laughs> to do that to other people. Um, I think I'm glad because it's 
Asian American Heritage Month. And because, you know, over this last month, even though it ended in a very, like, dramatic and kind of downer way that it did, like, the first half of it was actually pretty, like, like, there was a lot of stuff happening, like, the PBS documentary exposing people to the past, right? Exposing people to Asian American history, the history of Asians in America. And I thought this was a good compliment to that because this is like, this is a um, piece of the canon for a reason, right? Not only because it's like pioneering, but because, because of like, like what you said, you can see the links, like the path from this to Amy Tan, to Celeste, to even to, to the, the movies yeah. that were made. And are being made like love it or hate it. Maxine being able to reconcile the two sides of her like identity, right? And this was like one of the first books to really do that. Like definitely a book that I'm glad I read. We finally read a classic. <laughs> I know it only took us three, four years. I will say, like um, before we started recording this, uh, Marvin was like, "Hey, so how do you feel about like talking about the book?" And I said. I don't feel smart enough to talk about it. <laughs> like, I don't think I grasped everything that the book was trying to tell me. Um, I mean, we mentioned like themes about being silent, um, reconciling uh, your two cultures, um, you know, like misunderstanding your parents' love and all of that. But I just feel like there was so much and I was unable to grasp everything. And, um, I like like I don't understand how high school students who read this book <laughs> would be able to would be able to understand everything, you know? Like it's the same thing with Joy Luck Club. I'm like, you're reading it as a high schooler? Like like how are you going to get everything? Like I said, I don't think I should have read it as a high schooler because I didn't get everything, right? And I was trying to read it as an assignment um as opposed to like something to absorb and i think this book at least for us the way that we approached it it wasn't a book that we were reading to like you know gleam all like the literary stuff that that maxine did we were like feeling it i think as asian americans as children of immigrants it resonates with us in a specific way too that like it probably doesn't like to the like the millions of like non-Asian people that read it. Yeah, that read it, that analyzed it, yeah. and we're just like, oh, aren't we really smart people? And it's like, <laughs> no, like, sorry, I'm a I'm a basic bitch. <laughs> like <laughs> And we're sitting here like, yeah, my parents did that to us. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's what makes us unique, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's make us uh make us, you know, a niche podcast. <laughs> hey. We're, 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 yeah, we're kind of niche, huh? <laughs> yeah, we, we are very, very niche. But um, um, thank you so much for listening, yeah. uh, everyone. What did you think about Woman Warrior? Like, for all of you who probably read it in high school or college, um, I hope our, our discussion of it widened your understanding of the book. And yeah, so um, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, thank you so much for listening. Let us know what you think on our Goodreads forum. Um, we'd love to hear what, what you have to say. And it's a wild time out there right now. A lot of a lot of things are happening um, wherever you are, whether you're out in the streets or supporting from behind the scenes. Be safe. Um, there's a lot going on. 
including a global pandemic. So like, do what you can, um, but don't feel like you're not doing enough. I think a lot of us always feel like we're not doing enough. And I think there's a lot, there's so much going on that like, whatever you can give, um, you should give. And, but that's not to say like, it's okay to like, not care too. Like, the only way we'll get through all of this is if everyone cares. Um, because that that proves that we're, you know, that we're working towards something. Um, yeah, don't stay silent, you know. Yeah. Use your voice uh, in whatever way possible. Um, so our June 2020 pick is Convenience Store Women, uh, written by Sayaka Murata and translated by Ginny Tapley Takemori. I'm actually really excited. And um, you posted it on Instagram today at the day of our recording and people are also very positive about the choice so um i'm glad i'm i'm glad to um to read something where i don't have to uh be sad afterwards hopefully this isn't like um the um moon orchid chapter where it like bumps me out the end but um i'm looking forward to to reading it all right that's our show and we will see you next time yeah thanks for listening to books and boba bye everyone all right bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about The Collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Kathy! Kim! Steve? What's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-Cup coffee pots? Because you know they're bad for the environment? Uh, No. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So, are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden, from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean Drama Podcast at koreandramapod.com. Gotcha! Am I going to see Sana Tao Buns?